Any any prayer requests tonight? I'm looking forward to tonight because there's a there's a couple of things we're going to look at that to me go so directly to our faith and reason um, that to me are really difficult and profound. So I I want to um, try to be as careful as I can tonight because I don't think I always am. But um, no prayer request tonight. Any. Connie Wu, um, I'm going to include your mother-in-law for sure. It's Jackie, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a prayer request, Bob. Yeah. Hi, Mike. Uh, hello. Uh, two, two good friends. One uh, was a former. Both were used to be parishioners of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. Uh, Bill Sherlock, uh, an old friend of ours, his wife was our real estate agent. She passed a few years ago, but Bill passed about uh, three weeks ago, but his grandson, Tyler, is also, uh, he's uh, diabetic and took a turn for the worse about uh, a month ago. And uh, is in well, he's still hospitalized. It looks like he's pulling through, but he's still in pretty bad straits. How old is so, he, Mike? He's um, middle 20s. Oh, really young. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, did you have another one too? Did you say two? Or is that no, it? Bill and, Bill yeah. and Tyler. Tyler, okay. Thank you. Hi, Maria. I saw you just came on. Um... I'm good to see you again. It's always good to see yeah, you. Yeah, hi, good to see you. Thanks, thanks. Francis, Francis. Why am I not connecting here? Um, Francis, if you could put your camera on, I'd be glad to see you, just to welcome you. I'm, um, and... Marcy, I, I'm never sure if you're here. And Rodrigo Hernandez, um, your name has been on this list forever. I'm not sure if you're joining us, but if you are, I'd, I'd be so glad if you turned your camera on so we could meet you and greet you. But let's, um, Maria, any prayers tonight? You had a friend, Jose, didn't you, that you were... Yes, yes, um... He will be joining a seminary in June. So he decided? Uh, yeah. Wow. Good for him. Wow. Um, yeah. So, um, continuous prayer for him. What about you? Have you had some medical issues? No, I don't. I'm fine, thank God. Uh, but we, I pray for all of us to stay safe during this pandemic and all the people who lost uh, loved ones, um, that they may find consolation in God. Okay. Hi, Mary Jane. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 
Thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and for this day and for this gathering. Um, I don't want to call it a great relief, a great weight off of so many people's shoulders to have these vaccinations available and what seemed to be turns. Abbott today took away the mask requirement for people in restaurants. It's it's got to be a sign of hope. Uh, I'm glad he had the courage to do that. Um, um, help this turn fulfill itself. Um, that that the vaccinations will help and stores and restaurants will open again and we'll be able to take off our masks and receive both species at mass. Um, that we begin to get together again in our bodies. Help bring this about. Um, it's been a long ordeal. Um, ask a special grace for Bill. Receive him into your kingdom, even though it's been a, some time since he passed. Forgive his sins and let those who are his friends um, find a consolation in their faith in you. Receive him, please. And right now, look, um, look after his son, Tyler. Um, help that young man recover his strength. Um, Bill's his father, is that right, Mike? Have I got that right? It's his, uh, Bill is his grandfather. Grandfather. Um, the distances in the family are more and more with us, but the loss of a grandfather can affect lots of grandchildren really deeply. Um, we assume we're going to live with our parents all of our lives and then to have a death hit us is sometimes not easy. So strengthen that young man. Um, let this occasion of his grandfather's passing strengthen him. Um, help heal him of this, um, his diabetes to find help so that he can carry on life normally. Um, I ask a prayer for everybody else, too, for all of us, Maria. Um, I think, um, I think Melody, I think you've joined us, I'm not sure, for Melody and her family, um, for our own children here, and Suzanne and me, um, for all of us. Mike and Megan. Um, there's a young couple who, Mike actually is the one who put this program together, who's been so helpful for years. Um, he's marrying this weekend a, a young woman named Megan, and um, we just talked with Mike a while ago. Um, <laughs> it's a funny story. He's a UD graduate, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, and um, very patiently waiting and dating and I think more and more feeling like he wasn't going to find a young woman. And then this last year he did, and the two of them have been sort of amazingly patient working through you know, this courtship and coming to this point. So let a blessing be upon Mike and Megan. Um, let them carry your spirit forward and all they're about to undertake together, all the burdens that come with marriage. Not easy this day. Um, ask for a special blessing on Nikki and the Francis group, who's just recovered from surgery, and um, for all those who are struggling with ailments. Um, and ask for a particular grace for this group that the things that we're learning strengthen us in our faith um, 
encourage us to take our convictions out into the world and live them so that people can discover you um, through what we do. Help us to do that. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. I don't have the... Um, do you have... Is that the Ash Wednesday? No. No, underneath the book's not the sheet. That's not it. Can you all pull out Ash Wednesday for a second? I think I have it. Hold on one second. I've got it. If um, sorry about getting that note to you guys earlier, or because I intended to get it to you and then got distracted and didn't come back. If you've if you've gone online um, and got it printed, it will help because it's not an easy poem to read. And if you haven't printed off a copy, it may help to go on our site and look at it, but if you don't, don't worry about it. Um, there's a particular difficulty with this poem, and I'm glad to do it because it marks the beginning of Lent, um, so it's appropriate for us at this time. And it's a modern poem, it's not easy to read, and because it's a poem, people can just read it in their heads and partly miss what Eliot's doing. Um, I, I can't remember if we've done Eliot in this group. I know we've done Eliot a number of times in the Francis group. Um, there's, uh, he is, I think, I believe, the greatest poet of the 20th century. And he's difficult. He's writing in a non-Christian age and trying to hold on to s something Christian in an audience that, that no longer believes. Um, in the early part of his career, he had a wide following, largely of intellectuals, because he was not easy very, very intelligent. He got the Nobel Prize in literature for his work in poetry and criticism. His work in criticism is represents one of the most important bodies of criticism in the 20th century. That's how important he is. He wrote this poem um, not midway, but just just before midway in his career when he converted to the um, Anglo-Catholic Church in England. He was born and raised in America, but he left America because he thought it was a dust bowl, democracy, what we call a democracy, because England had more culture. He was raised Puritan, but he left the church, um, and then early in his life returned to the church. That was a major turning point in his life, and in some ways this poem marks that conversion. So it's a, it's a very, very important poem. The poem's called Ash Wednesday. It's, it, it marks the beginning of Lent. So it, it really speaks to everything that we took on when we began Lent and made whatever promises to undertake as a discipline um, during this Lent. 
So this is Ash Wednesday. There, I think there's six, six sections. I'm going to read a section each week. I'm not sure that we'll get through it in, in Lent. I may double up a couple of sections, but I may not. I want to see how it goes. But this first section's got a particular problem. And it's not going to be easy, and I'm going to leave you guys with some homework. I, I know that's something you all look forward to here. Um, um, you Bob, good, a thumbs up. Um, and and just so you know, because I, you guys, I, I think there's a danger in this virtual meeting that we're doing because it gets easy just to sit in a couch and do nothing. So I may I may spring a quiz on you guys on Ash Wednesday next week just to toughen you guys up a little bit here. This is Ash Wednesday um, in, in a midpoint in Eliot's career. I think the greatest poet in the 20th century. The other great ones were Wallace Stevens, um, Yeats, and probably Frost in a in a minor way. But Eliot is the the poet of the 20th century. He did things that nobody else has done. Ash Wednesday. Because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope, because I do not hope to turn, desiring this man's gift and that man's scope, I no longer strive to strive towards such things. Why should the aged eagle stretch its wings? Why should I mourn the vanished power of the usual rain? Because I do not hope to know again the infirm glory of the positive hour, because I do not think, because I know I shall not know the one veritable transitory power, because I cannot drink there where trees flower and springs flow, for there is nothing again. Because I know that time is always time and place is always and only place, and what is actual is actual only for one time and only for one place. I rejoice that things are as they are, and I renounce the blessed face and renounce the voice because I cannot hope to turn again. Consequently, I rejoice, having to construct something upon which to rejoice and pray to God to have mercy upon us. And I pray that I may forget these matters that with myself I too much discuss, too much explain, because I do not hope to turn again. Let these words answer for what is done, not to be done again. May the judgment not be too heavy upon us. Because these wings are no longer wings to fly, but merely vans to beat the air, the air which is now thoroughly small and dry, smaller and drier than the will teach us to care and not to care teach us to sit still pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death pray for us now and at the hour of our death that's the first section of ash wednesday it's got um, several other sections following it i'm just going to read the opening lines of, of the next section just to to help give a sense of a continuity because that the sections should not be separated. They should be read as a whole, but it's really too much for us to take on in, in our time. Sections, the second section begins, Lady, three white leopards sat under a juniper tree in the cool of the day, having fed the satiety on my legs, my heart, my liver, 
and that which had been contained in the hollow round of my skull. And God said, Shall these bones live? Shall these bones live? And that which had been contained in the bones, which were already dry, said chirping, because of the goodness of this lady and because of her loveliness. It goes on and on. Here's my question for everybody. In section one, Eliot gives us a number of unconventional stanzas. Five, with a concluding couplet. Five stanzas. The, the topos, the, the central figure, the central notion, if I can put it that way, um, is expressed in terms of dependent clauses. Because I do not, because I do not hope, because I do not hope to turn, because I do not hope to know again, because I know that time is always time. Every one of them moves around a dependent clause. I'm trusting you, it's been a long time since I've done grammar, but I'm trusting all of you know what a dependent clause is. A dependent clause is a reason for something else. I failed the test because I didn't study. Um, I worked hard today because I wanted to succeed in the tryout. Um, I did my taxes because I didn't want to, f to get um, um, a penalty fee. Right? Dependent clauses start with, um, with what I think are called adverbial conjunctions. Since, when, because, although. Right? Um, um, I, I like the guy, although he was a pain in the rear sometimes. Right? So dependent clauses only make sense in connection with an independent clause which precedes or follows them. But Eliot's not given us any independent clauses. All he's given us are dependent clauses. Because I do not hope to turn again. Because I do not hope for stanza. Because I do not hope to know again the infirm glory. Because I do not think. Second stanza. Because I know that time is always time. Places always and only place. Every, every one of the major stanzas begins with dependent or, or focuses on dependent clauses, conditions. So here's my question. This is one of the major poems of the 20th century. It's a conversion poem. What's the independent clause that Eliot leaves out? And why does he leave it out? How does it change from stanza to stanza? Why does he do that? Why does he do that? The poem's a powerful poem. It captures a conversion moment. But in every one of those stanzas, we've got these repeated dependent clauses with no starter independent clause. It's always omitted, always left out. Is that clear? Is everybody clear? Okay, that's your homework. Quiz next week. <laughs> what I'd like to ask of you, and this is, I'm really serious about this. Um, I'm really serious about this. What I'd like to do at the beginning of this class is ask you all what you came up with. What's the independent clause that Eliot omits? And, and how does it vary or does it vary from stanza to stanza? What is it? See what you come up with. Is that clear? 
Okay. You have homework for next week. Let's do... Let's do... Dante. Yeah. I will, Doc. Um, Amanda Gonzalez. Melody, are you here? I don't think you're here. Melody, are you here? Connie, where did you go? And Amanda, um, anyway, if any of you can show yourself, I'd be glad to see you. But quick review, very quick review. Um, the central theme of the Purgatorio, as we've seen, is going home. Amanda. Yes. Yes. Have you been here before? How many how many times? Oh, I'm not sure how many times. I just started with um, with the inferno. Yeah. Well, we're helping you to get out of it because we're in the purgatorio and. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's when I started with the meetings. With it was with inferno. Yeah. Okay. Good. 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 Good to have you. Good to have you. Thank you. The central theme of the purgatorio is going home. Those of you who've read Boethius will have a better feel for what's happening here because remember when Boethius was in his cell awaiting his execution, Lady Philosophy came to him and said, stop moaning, you're going to die, everybody dies. And remember he said, the problem with you is you've, you've lost your memory, you've forgotten what your beginnings and ends are. Because she said, if you remember your beginnings and your ends, you'll look at this problem differently. And remember, the problem the Boethius was in, the difficulties facing is, how he could have been in the situation that he was in because he didn't do a wrong. He was accused of doing something he did not do, and um, he's in prison awaiting um, his execution. It seems unfair. How can God allow evil to happen? How can evil men sometimes prosper and good men suffer. It's the Job story. It's the Job problem. Okay. And Lady Philosophy's answer was, it's a problem of memory, anamnesis, anamnesis. And the word to the Greek mind, and it would have been, it would have had that meaning for um, Boethius, is anamnesis means going back to recover something lost. It 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 is a word that. Um, marks the, the centerpiece of the Catholic Mass when Christ says, do this in remembrance of me. We take the Eucharist, Christ bearer, to, to bear Christ. We go back, receive him, bring him forward, to live him. Anamnesis. So, in one sense, the Purgatorio is recovering a sense of our origins of going back to God, um, going home. So the whole journey, in a sense, is, is a going back, a returning, a recovering the self that we once had, that we've lost. We, we were once whole with God. After the fall, we lost that wholeness. So we live in um, sin, and purgatory is the work of um, freeing ourselves from that sin. So the major theme of the purgatorio is anamnesis, 
a return, a recovery of the wholeness we once had with God. And you know that um, in purgatory what the penitents are doing are picking up the same sins that we saw in the inferno, except they're bearing them cheerfully. Um, instead of seeing them as punishments, um, they take them on as aids, as helps to make them better. Okay, So it's a completely different attitude towards suffering, completely different attitude. Ordinarily, we resent it when people put burdens on us. What Dante's showing is that very often those burdens help us get better. Um, we talked about the differences between modes of knowing in hell and purgatory. Remember, the, the way of knowing, the mode of knowing in the inferno is irony. The souls in hell don't know that they don't know. We only do because Dante's passing through. He's not of that community. So we can see a condition in which sinners refuse to see their sins. They live in pride, in a darkness, in an ignorance. They don't know. They don't want to know. They blame others. They go on with their lives. They've made their choice. They don't, they don't need to do anything differently from what they're doing. In the purgatory, that's not so. Everybody in the purgatorio knows that there's something wrong with them and they want to atone. So in purgatory, justice is being served. That's at the center of Christ's call. I keep emphasizing that because I think we've lost a sense of that in our world. Justice is being met through a mercy. All of them want to be with God. So they're accepting of the mercy that he offers. So they're undertaking these penance as a way of atoning for their faults and returning to him through his help. Okay. Remember I said at the um, one of the most important principles to hold on to in the in the in our reading of the Commedia is the idea of the Trinity. I've gone through it a number of times now. There's not an aspect of the of the Commedia that that doesn't reflect a Trinitarian um, principle in the world. The rhyme scheme, the three parts, um, um, the three parts of each of the parts, um, you can go on and on. But one of the things that I wanted to emphasize here was not just the structural principles at work, it's the Trinity itself. Um, um, because remember, um, our belief, the, 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 one of the two great mysteries of our faith, one of them is the Incarnation, how God could take on a human form. The other one is the Trinity. We believe that there is one God, three persons, that when God reflected on himself, he conceived the Son, and the love that he shared between the two is the Spirit. What, what takes place in that action can't be anything other than a person, because God himself is a person. So all three persons indwell with each other. And I've given you that, that quote from St. Thomas. In in our sphere, one is always less than two, three is always more than two, right? Two is more than one. In the Trinity, that's not so. One is not less than two, and two is not more than one. Um, each one is whole in itself and indwells perfectly with the other. So the whole of the Father is in himself, the whole of the Son. Same with the Spirit, they are one with each other. They perfectly indwell one with the others. 
So one of the one of the qualities that the penitents are are struggling to recover is this indwelling one with another. St. Thomas calls love unitive. It unites, brings one person together with another. Not just superficially, not by surfaces. That, that's what makes love so hard, because when we love another, we have to risk taking on the interior of another with all of its awful stuff. So the return, the, the, the climb of purgatory is not just a physical climb, it's an attempt to recover a spiritual condition. One with God, one with each other. So that when in love, in marriage, we just, we don't live conveniently one with another, we actually bear each other, carry each other in us. And I'm trusting everybody knows how hard that can be sometimes. Marriages, marriages are particularly hard today. Um, it's easy when things don't go the way you want to get a divorce, you know, to step away. Um, it, it's just a, it's not, a, it's not an easy age for, um, for love, so I, it's never been. But that's the nature of um, purgatory. God is present in time. One of the lines, I think we'll actually read it tonight, um, time is love. And I want to underscore this. If you got my notes today, you'll see it underscored. I've circled them. Um, God is present in time. The time on purgatory isn't time the way we look at time. One of the souls will say that. He'll say, time is love. Time is a function of being changed in love. Time passes only in terms of one becoming more and more like God. That's what measures time, not mathematical intervals. It's love. Um, the, the, more, the more you become like God, the more you become one with him, the closer you get to eternity, to a timeless condition. So even, even though earth time applies in the purgatory, there are three days, you know, the sun goes down, Dante has, um, has to sleep three times. Inwardly, another kind of time is taking place. It, love is changing, they're being changed by what happens in time. That's the measurement of time. Because it's on that basis that souls go from one ledge to the other. So if I were to put this in early terms, if we were, if you know, like the saints, if we were to do what Christ asked and, um, say, take Lent seriously, we would become more like the saints, we'd become closer to time. The less we would feel the effects of time as we know it in the world. All of this should be familiar to because that was Boethius' argument. Remember he said, fate is like the circumference of a circle. It just keeps whirling. People get caught up in it. That's what defines their lives. The closer you get to God, the closer you get to that still point, the quieter your life. Does it mean you're going to be free of it? No. Every one of the disciples was crucified. Saints are so often persecuted. But it's clear that what happened with them took them to a condition that most human beings don't know. Peace, a quiet, a trust, in God, a joy even. St. Francis took a joy in the stigmata. 
It was a joy for him to be pierced. It's not the way the world looks. So the scheme of, in terms of time of the Purgatorio is, remember, they arrive at the Purgatory Shore on Easter Sunday morning. It's a moment of renewal. Monday night, he has that dream. He goes to St. Peter's Gate. Tuesday, um, he has the dream of the siren, which we'll read tonight. And then on Wednesday, he'll have a dream of Leah and Rachel. It's at that point that Dante will return to the earthly paradise, to Eden, and it's there that he'll meet Beatrice. Beatrice will receive him, and she, um, Virgil will leave. Virgil will go back to hell. We, we're going to have to talk about that. That's a tough parting. And Beatrice will take him into the heavens, into what will be um, one of the most miraculous kinds of actions, and intellectually one of the hardest pieces of literature we'll ever encounter. The Paradisa will not be easy to read. It's just tough reading. Hi, Melody. Hi. Sorry I'm late. No, no, that's okay. Um, if, if you can, check in on the, on, the, uh, on the audio in this sometime later in the week just to get what we missed because I, I think it's really important. And I know, it's, I know from the way that you read that, um, that you'll, it'll mean a lot to you. So. But I just, I'm reviewing things again, um, Melody, so. Um, so that, those again are just basic principles. Um, remember, anti-purgatory was that condition of the soul before one starts to actively work at changing his life. And they were separated by degrees on the basis of, of how serious they took taking on changing their lives. When they get to the gates of St. Peter, that represents an active moment where um, you, you, you begin to do penance. Melody, one of the things you missed that I was actually sorry for because I, I think you would have enjoyed it. We're reading Ash Wednesday, and it marks the beginning. It, it's um, Eliot's conversion poem. It's absolutely appropriate to what we're doing here. Um, and it's online. It's in the poetry section, and I think I included it in our, in our class tonight. But... Um, the question that I asked everybody, and I want to put it to you because I, I, um, I would really like you to struggle with this this week, all, everybody, so we do it together. Every one of the stanzas that begins with because clause, dependent clause, because I, because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope, because, because, because. In every one of those stanzas, he, he keeps offering us dependent clauses without the independent clause, the starting clause. It's... Um, I failed the test because I didn't study. Um, I worked hard because I wanted to succeed. You know, it's all of those independent clauses. The dependent clause is contingent on the independent. It looks to it. It gives a reason. But Eliot never gives the independent clauses. And my question to everybody was, why does he do that? Why those blank omissions? It's a little bit like the apophatic that we've talked about before. That something is here and not here. So take a look at it, and just because I'm curious what everybody will come up with, okay? Um, the whole purpose of the journey of purgatory is to clear our sight and change our hearts. And the sight comes first, um, because it's on the basis of what we know that we give our hearts to something, to God, to one another, and in each of the three initial ledges in purgatory itself, pride, envy, and wrath, 
the the one thing that strikes us about the um, contrapassos is um, how they relate to sight. I can't. I'm going to take a minute with this in a minute. Remember, at the at the level of the proud, the 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 penitents have to bow down, and they have to strain to look at the goads, the goads on the mountain face. The checks are right in front of them. They can see their sins easily. They have to work hard at seeing the goads. Remember, the goads are on the side of the mountain, and they're carrying these boulders, so they're bent over. They have to work hard to turn to see. The level of envy, their eyes are wired shut. And on the level of the wrathful, they can't see because of the smoke. Now, clearly Dante's saying um, that what they're all learning is to see differently. They have to work at seeing. And the restoration, the recovery of the wholeness they lost from the fall, this is what the whole journey is. They're trying to recover that wholeness they once had with God and each other. Yeah? Because they don't see the way they should. And we know from the Bible that, con- um, that Christ is constantly healing people's sight. And in act of faith, people are constantly seeing things that other people don't see. So here's a major... See if I come to it. Wait, one, one last thing before I... Because I want to come back to this theme of sight. Remember I said that the climb up Purgatory had to be seen in terms of a combination between two principles, between law on the one hand and mercy on the other. They're answering injustices, but learning to bring a spirit of mercy to the way they do that. In our modern world, particularly in a Protestant world, fundamentalist world, um, love comes at the expense of law. Faith is a higher thing. That's not so with Christ. He said, I fulfilled the law and everything he did. He brings mercy to an act of justice. So a purgatory, people are learning to hold both those things together. To fulfill a justice, to answer a wrong, genuinely, to hold people responsible, but in a spirit of mercy. So law and mercy are held together, gentleness and harshness. Because the rules are harsh. Cato says, get going. The angel says, don't look back. Those are severe strictures. If you misstep on the ledge, you fall off. I mean, there's lots of ways to go wrong, so there's a strictness to the laws, but a great mercy. But I want to return, so those are are the governing principles of the Praetorium. I want to go back to what we we looked at last week, and I want to take a minute with with it here before we go on. I want to to pick up where we were last week and go go back to the book and do some readings with you and and get us to the the two discourses, the one... um, the one on free will and the one on love. But before we do, I want to take up this question of sight because to me it's, to me it's profound. What is it about sin? I'm asking this really seriously. If we take seriously what Dante's showing us on the first three ledges, the proud, the envious, the wrathful, yeah? Those are the most serious sins because what's behind them is a love of evil. Dante, uh, Virgil, Dante will make this clear. I'm going to come to it in a minute when we when we get back to the text. But those are loves of evil, pride, envy, and um, wrath. And in each one of them, something is um, involving sight directly. People are learning to see differently. 
Remember the, the proud have to strain. Um, the envious, um, remember their eyes are shut. Um, they hear spirits speaking to them as they pass by, the goads and the penance. So they have to learn to see th through their hearing. It's like a form of synesthesia where two senses are combined. Poets do that often. It's a form of synesthesia, combining hearing and sight. And in the level of the wrathful, um, the, the penitent souls have ecstatic visions. It's like spiritual visions inwardly. Okay? So they're learning a new way of seeing. Now let me go at this directly. This is going to take us away from the text for a few minutes, but I, I, hope, it, I hope it will serve. I think all of us know that we go around in the world thinking we see clearly. I'm looking at Connie right now. I'm seeing a part of her house I've not seen before. She's got a stairway behind her. She's got a pencil in her. Um, Melody looks as seriously as she usually does. She's, um, you know, everybody. Um, Bob and Karen are at that table. <laughs> Sometimes I wish we could have meal, all, you know, rotating meals at all of our houses and make these places real, but anyway, we all see each other. You see me clearly here. Our eyes are fine. Put an object in front of us and we'd have no, put on our glasses, we're okay. We see fine, okay? I'm sure all the souls when they started purgatory thought, I see fine, but there's something they don't see. So my question is, what is it about sin that blinds us? Hold on, because this is so important to me, and I think it's so important to Dante. You know that one of the qualities that distinguishes hell is the souls think they know, and they don't. Right? They've got all the answers. They're smart. They don't know that they don't know. That's the condition of sin. They think they see fine, and they don't. In the first three ledges of purgatory, we're encountering souls that are that are undergoing penances that are correcting the way they see. So this is not a small thing. This goes directly to our faith and the connection between faith and reason. So my question is, what is it about sin that blinds us? Particularly when we think, my sight's fine. I can see Mary Jane, I can see Michael, you can see me. Is, every, is that clear? This to me is so obvious. Remember, one of the greatest things I learned when in my graduate school from the teacher, I'll never forget him. He said, don't, don't, it's been such a help to me. Don't overlook the obvious. Don't, oh, I, I just think it's one of the most fundamental principles of learning. We think in our pride, we've got to be better than other people. We want to jump ahead. We've got, you know, don't overlook the obvious, the thing that's right in front of you. What does pride, how does pride keep us from seeing? What is it that we see in pride and what is it that we don't see? What does envy keep us from seeing? Um, what, is, what is somebody in envy seeing? Same with wrath. How does sin blind us when we think we're seeing fine? Not a small question. So, what do you guys think? Mary Jane, you have a thought? No? I don't think it's an easy question myself. I'm, 
Suzanne and I were talking about it earlier. We've been, and I, I go back to it and think, my God, we're we're in our 70s and we're asking a question like this right now. <laughs> we should have asked this question 50 years ago, you know. And you have a thought? Your audio's not on, and we're we're seeing through a filter, and that filter is how things are affecting us. We're not seeing the way that uh, that it, things affect others. Can you can you narrow that down? I, yes, I think yes, you're right. And can you narrow it down? Take on one of the take pride or envy or wrath, any one of them. If anybody okay. can. When, when we're proud, we overlook a lot of our negatives. We uh, we think that we're right. We think we're smart. We think we're good. <laughs> I'm trusting every every one of us is being convicted. She's just putting a knife in every one of us as she goes down that list. <laughs> I think she's nailing it. Yeah, I know. So do I. Come on, don't stop. You're doing really well. I just I'm I'm shaking right now. Just. <laughs> I I think we don't see ourselves necessarily as we are or as others see us. Yeah. Anybody else? Anybody else? Um, I think part of it, the, the problem with the Black Lives Matter movement is that people who aren't black maybe see the world as, you know, as, as they have experienced it. And they, they can't look through the eyes of someone else. So we, as white people, don't understand what uh, people with black skin or darker skin have experienced because of our pride or, you know, whatever blindness we have, um, we've blinded ourselves to the experiences as, of others. Yeah. So I think that's exactly what Ann was talking about. We, we kind of just see through our own experience and not, um, not leave room for the experiences of others. Yeah, I hope it's clear to everybody that the reverse of that is true as well. That um, that anybody claiming you know black lives, yellow it doesn't matter, white lives matter. That that it, it should raise a serious question: how well those people see? I mean, groups can exclude each other on the basis of a group sort of identity, um, wh whichever group you tend to be in. Um, it's a question of whether you can see another person as a human being, whatever that person's color, skin, or sex. Um, because very often group categories get in the way of helping us see each other as individuals. Um, anybody else? Um, sure. My sure. I, I know that when I sin, and it doesn't matter what kind of sin it is, but from the moment my mind starts to entertain that sin, uh, even before committing this sin, I start to rationalize 
as to why it's an appropriate response for me. It's either because I have a circumstance that calls on me to act that way, or it's because someone has done me wrong, or uh, or, uh, or any number of things. So I immediately start creating uh, an illusion for for my sin as an appropriate response. Yeah, yeah, good for you. Good for you, Mike. Anybody else? I think from there it goes to like the frog in the boiling water situation. You know, how you put a frog in water and you turn the heat up a little bit and he doesn't jump out because he's slowly acclimating to it. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. It's in good course. Um, let's see. We've been doing Lear, King Lear in Francis, at St. Francis, and even if you don't, if you know it, you'll know where I'm going, but even if you don't, King Lear makes a huge mistake at the beginning of the play in dividing his property up on the basis of what he thinks is a love on the part of his daughters. He's trying to buy off love. And once he turns over authority and responsibility to them, thinks he's relieving himself of his burdens, they turn on him and it's just, it's, it's, I think it's the most painful play in all of Shakespeare's canon. But what happens from that point to the midpoint of the play is that um, he and a, another, the older man at the two plots, the Lear plot and the Gloucester plot, both of them lose everything, absolutely everything. And they end up in a heath with, with nothing, a raging storm, nothing. The storm and the heath is like a meta metaphysical condition of what happens when man is stripped of everything. And what we learn is that once they're stripped of everything, remember Boethius's um, claim, the four things that get in the way, wealth, power, fame, pleasure. When those things, here's where it's going. When those things direct your life, how much do they blind you? Because those are the things you're after. Those are the things you want. Those are the things you see. So your sight gets narrowed down into those terms. What I want, I will have. If that's pride, even if it means using somebody or stepping over somebody. Envy, if somebody has it and I don't, and I think I deserve it, I'll be glad when he doesn't get it. So the proud person only sees what he wants. He doesn't see the good of others. He could be prejudiced, he could be white, he could be black. It does not matter. That's the way he sees things and he doesn't see the good of other things. The envious, because they don't have it, are glad when somebody loses it. They're sad when somebody has it. So they bring a blindness to the way they see, just the way a brown person does. The wrath will do the same thing if they're injured, if they... Um, they're stunned by a sense of injury. Somebody's done something, and they get wrathful. They make their own self, what they want for themselves, more important than the good of another. So in every one of those instances, a larger good is not seen, and it's lost. If love means anything, it means entering into the interior of another. Whatever his color, whatever his sex, to get rid of prejudices, presuppositions to learn to see people as they are whatever the circumstances so sin 
takes away our sight. It narrows it to what we want, um, what we're happy to see other people lose, because we don't have it. Um, um, whatever good is lost to somebody because of the injuries that they do us, we're more concerned about answering them ourselves than seeing the good of another person. So the whole movement of purgatory is to recover love and discover what it means to see in love and in truth, to see things as they are. They're not hedging on their faults. I mean, I thought Anne did a really good job. Um, they're admitting their faults. They're not afraid to admit them. They have to strain to see. Same thing with the envious. They have to work at hearing. So um, what's happening is they, as they learn to take on their sinfulness, it's as if their eyes are slowly opening and their hearts along with them. So that it, it helps bring them together with each other instead of dividing them. When Suzanne and I were talking about it, I was trying to give the example. What happens when we go, I mean, this, this sort of gets to it to me. If we, if we meet with people in a group, let's say we're at a reception, at a business reception or something, a party or, you know, we're, we're at a gathering. When people enter a gathering, any one of us, and you, you made it, you did so effectively, if you stepped into a world, a room full of people, what would you see? I mean, are, are, would we see the things we're talking about right now, all of us? Or would we be, how much would we be stuck on surfaces? You know, if you walk into a room, let's say you're a politician, you walk into a room and you know that there's a rival there, you might be, you might feel a tinge of um, jealousy or envy or, you know, because he's a rival and you want to be better than he is. And, and, or if you're a, let's say you're a woman and you watch a beautiful woman walk in the room, how much will you be affected by your own pride or your envy that she may be more sexier than you or prettier or, you know, something. Um... But how much of us just stay on surfaces? Do we really see people as they are? I mean, let me give a good example. A couple walks into a room. There's 50 people in the room. We're all mingling. We see each other. To all appearances, that couple, a couple is happy. And we learn two days later, they're in the midst of a divorce. Did we see what was going on underneath the surface? I don't think so. One of the descriptions that I read of Jane Austen when I was early on in my schooling was she was, she was a person on whom nothing was lost. I just thought, I mean, she, I, I so loved her for a time, I still do. I think there's a large measure of evil that Jane Austen didn't see. And that's to take nothing away. I think she's an extraordinary writer. She gave me my eyes. But she was described as being a person on whom nothing was lost. If you've read her novels, you know how... how finally discerning her presentation of character. She, she, shows them, she shows them so concretely that you believe in them. Shakespeare was a deeper writer because he could see the evil in man. I mean, it can be more truly said of him and Dante, they were artists on whom nothing was lost. It's hard to believe that Dante couldn't go into a room and look at people and see far more below the surface than most of us. Most of these poets are helping us to see beneath the surface, to get past surfaces, to help, to help us see. And they do it in a way to help open our hearts 
to help us feel things that we wouldn't feel without seeing them. So what's going on in the early stages of purgatory involves an opening of eyes. And they, they all mean seeing at spiritual levels, not just on surfaces. Right? The envious have their eyes closed. They've got to learn to hear and see through their hearing. Because as envious people, they turned away from the good. When somebody lost something, they took a joy. If somebody got something, they were sad. What should be the appropriate response to good? It should be a joy. Anyway, you know, we've seen this through each of the levels, right? When we got to the envious, remember the angel um, takes off, the angel of mercy or generosity, he takes off the P and the misericordia is, if I remember, is, is sung behind them. And the beatitude is, blessed, blessed are the merciful. Because the merciful feel sadness at loss when somebody loses something, right? The envious feel glad when somebody loses something. So at every level, they're learning to see spiritual realities, to get off surfaces. Let me stop here. Just That's just a quick... Any, any questions about Dante or what we're talking about here? Bob, I'd just like to say, this is Julie, I'd just like to say I love that we're doing this during Lent. I just think it's just, um, it really kind of forces you to kind of look hard. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I'm not surprised you said that. That <laughs> It's a good heart. Yeah. I agree, Julie. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I'm so glad for the timing, and I'm glad we're doing Elliot's um, Ash Wednesday. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to take some time here about seeing, because I think most of us take seeing for granted. We see so well, you know, we just see so well. And you read a work like this or a work like King Lear and think, God, I have such a long way to go in my seeing, you know. Any other questions or comments? I would like to add, I think that social media has really played upon these three and made them worse. Oh, could not have um, Boy. Because of pride and, you know, you're not going to show anybody your, uh, the most miserable day that you've had. You're going to show them the best day that you've had. And then other people see that and think, why can't that be me? And then they're angry over it, and yeah. So, uh, yeah. Okay. I, Mel, again, I couldn't agree more. Um, what, one of the beauty, one of the reasons I'm so enjoying Lear. I, in fact, I wanted to push it at you guys and tell you to read it, even when we're doing Dante, because I'm so taken by it. One of the things that that we see in Lear. Susanna's coming at me and telling me to put my socks and slippers on. Sorry. <laughs> um, one of the reasons I'm enjoying Lear so much is because that's exactly what's happening. If you read Lear, you see a whole community losing everything, and they form a community on a heath. They're poor, they're impoverished, they've lost everything. And one of the questions I asked the class last week is, how do we characterize this community forming on the heath? 
because it's had to give up everything. And we, when we look at the political community around it, they're motivated by pride, envy, power, lust, and they're killing each other. And the beauty of it is that I mean, it's, such a, it's such a perfect example of you know, what you're talking about, Melody, that if you remember Boethius's image of the circle and the still point, remember the more, the more you're on the circumference, the more you're caught up with this stuff, the closer you get to that providence, to the center, the quieter. What that Heath community represents is that center. It's, it's, it's been so abused, so hurt, and it can't, it can't argue in terms of that, like one group against another, because that takes them back on the surface again. What's required is renunciations of the world. So long as you're caught in the world, you're going to keep going at each other. So, yes to what you're saying. Um, and I'm loving Lear right now because it, it so directly speaks to just that. Um, and I couldn't agree. The social media is the media of that outer... You know, I mean, I, I keep hoping for a voice that will speak critically of the problems of the world, but free, freed some of prejudice, bigotry, power, pride, vengeance, getting back. You know, those are the terms of the world, and they're real. I mean, you, you can't deny them. We're called to justice. You can't overlook justice. But to, to achieve a justice in a mercy, to... Love while you do these things, a much, much, much harder thing. So that's what Dante's, that's what Dante's dealing with. <laughs> Sorry. Um, okay, let's, let's look at the book. I want to go back quickly um, and just to review a couple of the things that we looked at. Um... Turn to the um, page um, 250, I think 254, 253. No, 250, 254, yeah. Remember we talked about the level of the proud, so we've been here, you guys know this, you you know the three bottom levels, but I want to I want to go back to pick up a little bit. You know what the contrapasso is at these boulders because people were too too proud to do little things, so they were above them. They didn't do hard things, and now they're having to bear them. They're having to learn humil. They're having to learn humility. But we didn't go into the particular examples, and I want to just take a minute with them. On page two fifty four, the first person that Dante meets says on 254 at the top, line 63 or so. My ancient lineage, the gallant deeds of my forebears, had made me arrogant, forgetful of our common mother earth. I held all men in such superb disdain. This goes so to your point, Anne. It's exactly what you were describing. I held all men in superb disdain. He was above it. I died for it. And um, he goes on, I'm Umberto. And the sin of pride has ruined not only me, but my house, dragging them with it to a calamity. This weight which I refused while I still lived, I now am forced to bear among the dead until the day that God is satisfied. He can't decide it. I think that's so important to see. It's not up to us. How many of if we're in pride, how many of us can rely on our own judgment to say, now I now I deserve to be set free. 
I hope you're the pride in that. I deserve. I mean, that's a little bit like Francisca, if the God were only friendly to me. It can't be up to us. We don't see very well. Um, go down at the bottom. Oh, I said, you must be that Odorisi, honor of Gubo, honor of the art, which men in Paris call illuminating. The pages of Fran Franco Bolognese paints, he said. My brother smiled more radiantly. His is the honor now. Mine is far less. He's a painter. Um, on 256, um, we're introduced to Provenzan Salvani. That's Provenzan Salvani, replied, and he's here because presumptuously he sought to gain control of all Siena. Now let me just stop. Those are the three people because we don't have a lot of time to take up you know, each of the cases. What are what do the three men illustrate? What what is? They're all proud, but their pride comes in different areas. Identify the areas, because Dante, you remember Dante orders things just like Homer in the Iliad. Remember the there are stages to the um, to the anti purgatory. Um, What's the ranking here? What's what's the area? What's the type of pride? What's the pride directed to in each of these examples for Umberto Odorisi and um, Salvani? Well, there's a pride of lineage at the beginning. Right. And uh, a pride of skill. Uh, Odorisi, I believe, is is proud of his his skill, his art. Right, right. And the last one. Call it power, political power influence. Let, let me just, uh, let me see, I, I want to ask this again. I mean, this is taking time, and but the first one is pride of family. The pride one takes in one's family. The next one is um, the pride one takes in his own abilities, artistry, skill. I mean, you used that word, Mike, which I think is really appropriate. The last one is his pride in the power he exercises over other people. Line these up with Christ. Did they match up with him or not? In his warnings? Melody, are you shaking your head yes? or? Well, Christ is the contrapasso because obviously his lineage is more impressive than anyone's, yet he didn't hoard it over anyone. And his power and his skill. I mean, he he was the most humble of anyone. So, yeah, he yeah. should be yeah. he should be who we're looking to. Yeah. I was thinking too along the lines of um, the warnings he gave so often. He's repeatedly warning people of the sins of family. Um, if a mother and father choose themselves over me, I came to divide a family. 
um, he tells the guy to come, and the guy says, I've got to go bury my father. I mean, think about it, really. It, I mean, it seems to me, when, if you have a family, it's one of the gravest temptations because those are the ones you're closest to. Your pride is going to show up. By the way, that's what we're doing in King Lear. I mean, we're looking at that up, you know, writ large. That the dangers the family present to us are great because our loves are most immediately there. It's where, we're, where we can be mo most blind. The skill and accomplishments, the skill and power, or the power that one exercises. Think about how often he had to go up against the Sadducees or the Pharisees um, or even the Romans. Um, so Dante's really clear in the order here. The gravest danger, the one that comes first to us on the level of pride is the family and then skill, accomplishments, and then power. Um, go to two, um, let's see, I think it's 266, let me see. Um, on 267, remember, he met um, Sapia, who took pleasure when her, um, when her city was destroyed. And then in um, 272, he meets Guido, who from, from about 270 to, over to 272, Guido, um, it's one of these long criticisms, condemnations of conditions in Italy. And he's talking about the um, Arno Valley on page 270. I don't know why, but it could be only a blessing for that valley's name to die. And he starts describing all of the cities that grew up along the Arno River. Um, virtue is loathed, men run away from it, from a snake. Either this place is cursed or else it's old corruptions guiding them. 271, the dwellers in that miserable vale have let their nature be transformed. It is as if they lived on food from Circe's sty, past hoggish brutes, packs of small curs um, who snarl more than they bite. Meaning, um, still further down it falls, the more this damned and godforsaken sewer ditch expands, the more the dogs give way to wolves. Over and over again, Dante's making clear that this modern world, this new commercial world, with all of its elegance and power, um, comes at the expense of old virtues. More agrarian, people were closer to the earth, they weren't as spoiled, they weren't as soft. We've been seeing him say this again and again. And then Guido says on 272, remember when he's describing all of these wrongs, he said, I sowed this envy now, I reap this straw, O human race, why do you place your hopes where partnership must always be denied? That's where we left off, if I remember correctly. You all, you all remember the answer to that, don't you? Um, You all remember? Uh oh. Um, huh? Oh, really? Wow. Um, on page two seventy eight, Dante's still puzzled by. Guido's comment, and he said, why, what does he mean when he said that? 
278 at the top, because you make things of this world your goal, which are diminished as each shares in them. Envy pumps hard the billows of your size. I remember I gave the example of the pecan pie. Let me write, remember if you if you suddenly learned that your aunt is going to bring her six children and you're going to get less of the pie. So let me let me stop here for a second. How how does envy affect your sight? Just if we take this instance here. At the moment when you learn your aunt is coming for Thanksgiving and your mom's only made two pecan pies and your aunt's bringing six children, you're going to have to share that pie with six of your nieces and nephews. What's your response in your heart and mind? What do you see? Or how do you see? That if someone has something, you you don't have the opportunity to have that. So you have less of an opportunity to get that. It's, it's, um, it, it's a subtraction method. How does it There's do to your sight? So what does it do to your sight and your heart? Well, it it, it um, narrows your vision to where you can only see what you want or have versus what what's available. Yeah, or what you're going to lose. Yes. So your heart gets sad. I mean, I I just think these things are so commonplace. You know, when you're losing something you think you deserve or you want, and somebody else gets it, your heart gets sad. That's what you see. Do you see a good? I mean, there's a sort of blindness in that. We see fine. The nephews and nieces come over. To all appearances, we're all happy and everything's going on okay. But inside our hearts, things are not okay and that's not what we see. I need to work on that for sure. <laughs> You're not the only one. <laughs> God. Um, go back to 272 because it's a, it's a good instance of what's going on with the penance here. Um, Guido's going to rake this remark, but um, on 272 in the middle of the page, about line 78 or so, the shade says, and you want me to bring myself to do what you refuse to do for me? So you asked me to do something, or I asked, um, and um, you want me now to do something for you? But since God wills his grace to shine in you, so generously stingy I shall not be. Guido del Duce used to be my name. That's when he did. So he's not going to be stingy, and he's not going to wait until Dante gives him what he wants before he gives. If any of you remember, if you any of you remember back in the Inferno, at the very end of the Inferno, remember Dante made that agreement to that he would give his name when the soul identified himself, and the soul wouldn't have Dante pulled his hair out. Here you've got an instance. I mean, it it shows that this man is struggling against grudging. He's trying not to grudge. He will do this freely, even though it cost him. So at every level, at every level, we're watching souls take on their sins to help them recover their sight, their powers of sight, and their heart. Okay. Now, hold on. I want... Um, Sorry, hold on a second, you guys. I want to go to the um, level of... Um, oh, here. 
I want to go to the just quickly over the level of the wrathful. Um, um, remember that all of the souls in the wrathful are are um, enveloped in smoke. It's the it's the effect the contrapasso of their sin. So when they're injured by another person, they will blow up. They will. Um, I thought Mary Jane's <laughs> smoke coming out of our ears and probably other things too. But on two seventy six, at the very beginning of the of the canto, Dante says the same amount of time it takes that's fear, which like a child at play is never still, to go from break of day to the third hour was left now for the sun to run its course towards night. Mid afternoon, it was up there on the earth, and midnight here where I am writing this. It's the first mention that Dante is actually writing the poem. And that's important in this sense, that if, if we take the meaning of this one line, what we see is that Dante's not writing about something. He's living it in the writing of it. That's one of the important aspects and powers of poetry. We're actually undergoing this um, in, in the script that he's writing, but he's writing it at this time, where I'm writing this. Um, on page 279, um, we don't get any sinners at this point here, but at this point in this Canto 15, what we do get are the goads. Um, at the top of 279. Um, there it seemed to me that suddenly I was caught up in an ecstatic trance, a temple filled with people I could see, a lady at the entrance whispering tenderly as a mother would, my son, why hast thou dealt with us this way? And that's the first goat, and then the other one down below is um, another ecstatic trance. Remember, it's inward. It's not a visible image because nobody can see. It's something seen inwardly. Um, it's a lady. She spoke, If you are master of this town whose naming caused such strife among the gods, which shines as the source of all the arts, take vengeance on those wanton arms that dared embrace our daughter, Opisistratus. And then it seemed that Lord replied to her, What shall we do to those who wish us harm if we condemn the ones who show us love? She was so insulted at what this guy did that she wanted to see this guy injured because it offended her but he was a good man. And Pisistrata says, if we do bad to good men, um, what, can, what, are, what are we going to do with ourselves? But who is the first? You know that Mary's the first goat, always. What's, what's Mary doing in this instance here, and how is it an appropriate response to wrath? My son, why hast thou dealt with us this way? When Jesus was 12 years old and stayed in the temple when they were on their way home and then the parents were frantic and went back to the temple and instead of screaming at him, she said she was meek. <laughs> <laughs> why did you do this? Instead yeah. of strangling the kids. Yeah, right. Um, let me ask this another way. It, is she totally without anger? There's not well, a question in my mind that what she does is meek. Is she without anger? 
Well, I think she's angry, but she's not going to show it. She's keeping it to herself and um, self-restraint. There has to be an element of anger, she, or she wouldn't say, why did you do this to us? You know, why, you, why have you done this? But the, the point is, it, uh, her response doesn't let the fact that she's been hurt so overcome her that she takes him apart. The interesting thing about that, and what's so memorable to me about that passage, is if you remember it, is that it ends that 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 section of the of the verse, the passage in scripture, ends with, and they went home, and Jesus obeyed them. This is Christ obeying a, an earthly mother, and people have problems with obedience. God. That's God. Um, um, okay, let's hear. I, this is where I wanted to get. Turn to 282. They are at the level of the wrathful. And um, on 282, the prayer that we hear them singing is the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God. Why is that appropriate for the level of the wrathful? Lamb of God, the Agnus Dei. Each prayer they sang began with Agnus Dei. The same words sung in unison produced an atmosphere of perf perfect harmony. Master, these voices, are they shades I hear? I asked, and he said, yes, you are right, and they are loosening the knot of wrath. Here it is. And who are you whose body cleaves our smoke? Somebody's asking, Dante, you speak of us as though you still belonged with those whose measure time is by calendar. The measure of time here is not calendar as we know it. It's love. We'll actually see that um, in a bit. The person they're, they're meeting um, is Marco, and I want to come to this, but why is Agnus Dei appropriate here as the song for this level? Well, a lamb is a sign of meekness. Yeah, is meekness. Is meekness. Yeah, I mean, lambs are. Um, all of these is just another reminder how, how beautiful purgatory is. Prayers, hymns, beatitudes, joy, wonder, art. I mean, picture the world. This is not a barren wasteland. This is an image of God's bounty surrounding people. And the importance of it is it, it's, it, it's the backstory of everything that goes on because it's a reminder that what everybody needs to learn to do is to love the good. To not let their pride get in the way, to not let their envy get in the way, to not let their wrath get in the way. There's this great goodness in God's creation. Our pride too often narrows it down to what we want, what concerns us. That's what pride is. Or envy, what we think we deserve and aren't getting, or anger, not wrath. So there's this richness to purgatory that's extraordinary. The images, the goads, prayer, the voice. Sorry? The prayer says, grant us peace, which would be the opposite of wrath. Right, yeah. Okay, on 283, this is the first of the two discourses that I... I want to give some time to here. Dante looks to Marco, this is Marco Lombard, and says, 
what why all this evil because um, the one thing that Dante keeps hearing from the penitents on purgatory um, is the corruption of the world remember when Casella arrived on the ship when Dante came to the shores of purgatory they had just come from Egypt and now they're coming to the promised land so Egypt is an image of the world greed power pleasure everything that governs the world that leads to violence and division and you know all that we've been looking at here's Marco Lombard giving his answer to Dante's question page 283 I was a Lombard, Marco was my name, I knew much about the world, I loved that good at which men now no longer aim their bows. This was the Christian Middle Ages. It was, it was a theo, theocentric, a God-centered world. The modern world is anthropocentric, man-centered. He's turned away from God, those old virtues of goodness, of courage, of honor, things like that temperance, remember the natural virtues, those virtues are dying. I love that good at which men now no longer aim their bows. The path you're on will lead you to the stairs. Thus he replied, then ended, now I pray, I pray that you will pray for me when you're above. So song, music, shared prayers, communion between people. It's, it's a community that does this because it's stepped away, it's separated from the world that takes everybody up. I promise you to do what you've asked, I said, but there's a problem haunting me. I can no longer keep it to myself. He says, where does the corruption of the world come from? Please make it clear. Down at the bottom, a deep sigh wrung by grief into alas came first and then, the world brother is blind and obviously the world is where you're from. You men on earth attribute everything to the sphere's influence alone as if with some predestined plan they moved all things. If this were true, then our free will would be annihilated or compromised. It would not be just to render bliss or good or pain for evil. That is, it would not be appropriate. This is one of the things that marks the modern world. Um, um, we did C.S. Lewis's um, essay, Abolition of Man, some months back. And in a couple of C.S. Lewis's work, he's saying, we've, we're trying to use therapy to replace a philosophy of desert that men men be treated according to what they deserve for good bad when they do things good they should be rewarded when they do bad things they should be punished um, to render bliss for good or pain for evil the spheres initiate your tendencies not all of them but even if they did you have the light that shows you right from wrong and your free will which though it may grow faint in its first struggles with the heavens can still surmount all obstacles if nurtured well you are free subjects of a greater power, a nobler nature that creates your mind, and over this the spheres have no control. So if the world today has gone astray, the cause lies in yourselves and only there. Now I shall carefully explain the cause. From the fond hands of God, who loves her even before he gives her being, there issues forth like a child, all smiles and tears at play, the simple soul, pure in ignorance which having sprung from her creator's joy, will turn to anything it likes. At first she's attracted to a trivial toy, and though beguiled, she will run after it. If guide or curb, do not divert her. Here's that um, image of a curb. Spurs, curbs. Men therefore need the restraint of laws 
needed a ruler able at least to discern the towers of the true city. True, the laws are there, but who enforces them? No one, the shepherd who is leading you, can chew the cud but lacks the cloven foot. So the flock that, that see their shepherd's greed for the same worldly goods that they have craved are quite content to feed on what he feeds. As you can see, bad leadership has caused the present state of evil in the world. He goes on. Let me stop. Well, he goes on at the top. Oh, Rome that brought the world to know the good once those two once shown two suns that lighted up the ways, the road of this world and the road of God. The one sun has put out the other's lights, and we're, we've left with this mess. What's his criticism? And what does he mean when he says, the shepherd who is leading you can chew the cud, but lacks the cloven foot? Before you answer, um, go back to page 227, so you can hold both of these things together. <clears throat> Remember, this is um, um, Sordello 227. We read, we read this earlier. Remember, he said, You priest who should pursue your holiness, remembering that God prescribes for you, let Caesar take the saddle as he should, See how this beast has grown viciously wild without the rider's spurs to set her straight since you dared take the runes, the reins into your hands. And down below he says, Come see your city, Rome, in mourning now, widowed alone, lamenting night and day, my Caesar, why have you abandoned me? So that was in, um, in anti-purgatory. Here at the level of the wrathful, um, uh, Marco Polo is saying, the shepherd who is leading you can chew the cud but lacks the cloven foot. So the flock that see their shepherd's greed for the same worldly goods that they have craved are quite content to feed on what he feeds. A few lines over on 285, O Rome that brought the world to know the good, once shown two suns that lighted up two ways, the road of this world and the road of God. The one sun has put the other out. What's his critique? What's led to the corruptions that, that are so widespread now. Thanks, Doc. Here. <clears throat> what is he, who is he referring to? The shepherd who is leading you can chew the cud but lacks the cloven hoof. Is he talking about Church t overstepping its bounds. Related, can you, Mary Jane, to the to the passage specifically? Your, your answer is right, but I'm not sure that it's clear to everybody. Go ahead. Well, I'm not sure it's clear to me either. That's just what I thought. <laughs> I because I can't pinpoint who it was that's taken over, but is the Pope taken over the state? The state. Yeah. Okay. Same thing as he said earlier. Remember what was the what what page is that two twenty yeah priests you should pursue your holiness remembering what God remember Christ said given to Caesar what Caesar's given to what's God what's God the state has its own realm this is so much a part of the American character but we've lost it I think given to Caesar what Caesar's given to God what's God Caesar is the ruler of the world the Pope is the head of the church 
You priest who should pursue your holiness, remember what God prescribes you. Let Caesar take the saddle as he should. See how this beast has grown vicious. There's an animal aspect to all human beings. We all have an animal in us. What happens when the laws get too soft to the animal in us? It's viciously wild. Without, we're a law, I would say. I mean, some of you can are. I'm glad that if you want to open this up, I want to be careful right here. But we've become a lawless country. I mean, the crime rate and all the ills that we suffer are, to me, in my mind, far beyond what Dante knew, except for the killing and the wars. Without the writer's spurs to set her straight, since you dared to take the reins into your hands. My Caesar, why have you abandoned me? He's taking the lines that Christ spoke to God and applying them to the world because Caesar is not performing his function. The, the laws are not doing what they should do. Here he's saying the shepherd who is leading you can chew the cud. That's a metaphor for meditation. Chewing the cud means meditating. One of the roles of the Pope is contemplation, meditation, prayer. The, the role of the church is to save the soul. The shepherd who is leading you can chew the cud but lacks the cloven hoof. He can't bring down the bite of laws. Laws are important. Take them away and we become lawless. So the flock that sees their shepherd's greed, once the clergy become corrupt, and, and I, I don't know if any of you have read that, that recent letter, or I mean that little book that um, Bishop Barron sent out. Um, it's, it's, I can't remember, the, to, a, to a suffering church. He, he, he's a really remarkable bishop. He, he's writing about the corruption in the church, particularly with all the pedophilia, you know, all the sexual disorders, and the, the way the church has not done what it should have done. And this, this, is for, this is for decades now. This is not a recent sin. These are corruptions that have been in the church for decades. Where were, the, where were the clergy who knew about these things? Um, I mean, it's just horrible to think, but it's there. Um, the corruptions of the church, the softness. The church is finally toughening up, thank God, and holding these people accountable. I mean, the, the, the um, McCarran, um, the Pope um, stripped him, you know, um, of his ordination. I mean, he's doing what he should have done with one of our own clergy. So, in a, in a real sense, justice is returning to the church, but with a mercy. And Dante's saying, O Rome that brought the world to know the good, once shone on two suns that lighted the world. Now one's put the other out. Because the church at that point was too involved in political power and preventing the state from doing what it should do. Remember, one of the inheritances of the West is this division between church and state. There are two powers. That's what the early church said, following Christ. There are two powers, Caesar's, God's. Um, and every age has to struggle um, to deal with both of those. And it seems to me every, every home, every city, every organization in some way has to deal with um, the relation between those two things. What's the point of, of Marco's... Um, discourse. Can anybody just put this briefly? What's he saying is the cause, besides the this um, failure um, on the part of the church because it's overstepping its bounds? The spheres initiate your tendencies, not all of them, but even if they did, you still have a light that shows. 
then he gives the, the illustration of the simple soul being born into the world. At first she's attracted to a trivial toy. She's in innocence at first. Um, and though beguiled, she will run after it if guide or curb do not divert her love. Men therefore need the restraint of laws, needed a ruler, needed a ruler at least to discern the towers of the true city. The, the struggle to bring both into play, to curb a child, to set curbs limits, but still love it, you know. But watch this, the spheres initiate the tendencies. You men on earth attribute everything to the spheres influence alone as if with some predestined plan they moved all things. If this were true, we'd have no free will. If there's no free will, then what happens to desserts? What we deserve. <clears throat> Christ one day is going to come and give us what we deserve. In mercy, I mean, that's one of the things he did, but <clears throat> we, you know, the goats and the sheeps, the wheat and the tarn, that'll all, <clears throat> that'll all come to pass. What's his argument? What's he saying? And can anybody apply it to our contemporary world? Well, to me, it almost sounds like he's saying the government needs to be justice. Uh, the church needs to be mercy, uh, but the two shouldn't meet. So, like, let the church be merciful with the souls, but if somebody messes up, the the government needs to be all justice. So there's no, really, there's no blending of that. And that's a little concerning to me, <laughs> that, that there wouldn't be um, the opportunity for people to see why something happened and and try to work with the work with people who have done something wrong i mean to me it just sounds like it's very it's almost black and white and there's no gray so yeah. i may be interpreting this wrong anybody else I, I i i think it's i think it's closer to what you would wish um but wait a minute wait a minute before i somebody else anybody else have a thought on this i or? think I think he's really talking about uh, love and mercy without uh, justice, without law, without curbing. Sorry, without, without what? Without curbing our oh. appetites. Yeah. Just indulging. Yeah. Let me let me see if I can cut because I want to get on to this next thing, Dante's next discourse. What is the significance of the cloven hoof? It's it's the um, well, I, I, I the term cloven hoof. It's just I think it's a sharp instrument. It it's the you know a kick from a from a sharp animal. It's uh, the cloven hoof. It the the um, the the church should not have the power civil power to punish people. That's not the church's job. Let me, let me put out his argument and then try to respond to Melody because it's a serious concern here. What he's saying is that most people believe that um, the spheres, the, the material order of the universe, um, determines who and what they're going to be. So he's saying it's these notions of, pre -de of determinism that play on people's minds so that they don't take responsibility for themselves. That's, that's the basis of his argument. Um, 
They attribute everything to the spheres. If this were true, then free will would be annihilated. The spheres initiate your... T- so what he's saying, and I think very realistically, he, he, he's not a dumb guy. Um, in fact, he's amazingly brilliant. But what he's doing is acknowledging the materialism in our lives, that there are determinisms in our character. We have bodies. Um, every scientist today would claim as much because scientists today believe in the social sciences, which is where I'm going to go in a minute, believe that we are determined. Freud believed we had no free will. Darwin, in a sense, underscored that, even though he put it in evolutionary terms, that we are a product of forces. So he's saying that these, these philosophies or beliefs that we are determined by things undermines our free will and our efforts to be good. And the, the serious criticism is that one of the problems is that instead of um, applying both law and mercy, the churches ended up taking too much control and being too merciful at the expense of laws. M- Melanie, let me go to your, your question because I, I, I think Dante's actually much closer to where you would. I don't think he would say justice belongs to the state. Dante's too much of a realist to say that, or, and that the function of the church is mercy. He would say that Caesar governs our body in some sense, politically, things that go on here. So um, he has an, an, an important responsibility in overlooking the laws and um, enforcing them. Let me put it that way. But you know, and I know, that very often in, in, a, in a good system of laws, the judges will enforce laws but do it in a spirit of mercy. I mean, they bring mercy to what they do. Whether we're doing that today is, I don't want to go there, but theoretically, hypothetically, that's the function of Caesar. The function of the church is, is not just mercy. The church is called to justice. It's, I mean, that's why we have the Old and New Testament meet, readings. But the church doesn't have the um, function or the power to legislate civil laws or enforce them. That's not its job. So I don't think Dante would put it, I don't think he's black quite the way you were worried he was, he's not. He knows that that Caesar oversees laws and they have to be enforced, and when laws are not enforced, um, lawlessness ensues. And he also knows that the church is called to justice and mercy, um, but it can't do it through, it can't legislate laws. Its, its concern is for salvation. That's the ultimate end. But what he is saying is that the church at that point in time has taken too much power, it's too involved, and it cannot enforce laws the way laws should be. And it's resulted in this, what he's, what he's been describing, the softness, this effeminacy, the loss of virtues, the, you know, all the things that he's been showing in all these things. So basically what he's saying is that... Um, Man has to be careful of these determinisms. And the reason that I want to underscore this today is because all of the sciences, modern scientists, rests on determinisms. What can't be other than it is? So that even in some psychological circles, particularly if they're Freudian, those theories are going to deny free will. They're going to say all these things going on in the soul are determined. They don't deal with free will. That notion they don't allow for it. So that what, and, and one of the effects of that is it makes people, it turns people into victims. They're at the mercy of these things they can't do anything about. 
That's one of the dominant characteristics of the modern age. We're product of forces, that's Darwin. We're product of these Oedipal polymorphous sexual perversions, that's Freud. The human being in the modern world is a victim of these determinisms. And right here, Marco's saying, no, the soul is born free, it's given free will, it has to answer to these determinisms because they're a part of our nature, but they can't govern us. Um, and your free will, which though it may grow faint in its first struggles with the heavens, these, these deterministic influences, can still surmount all, all obstacles if nurtured well. We have to take care of what we do with ourselves and each other. Because if we don't, the problems increase. So that's the discourse on free will. In the next, in the next canto, which is the center of um, the, the whole book, Dante, is, Dante and Virgil are climbing the steps to the slothful when the sun goes down and they have to rest. This will be the point at which Dante will have his dream of the siren. I'm assuming all of you have read that, and you know the siren from the Odyssey. Remember, the siren is that beautiful creature that, that lulls men onto the shore, and when they come onto the shore, they all die. So we have to ask what Dante's doing with his siren, because he's, he's taking what Homer gave him, but changing it in a profound way. So I want to look at that. But before we do, we've got Virgil's discourse on... Um, on love. Um, the bottom of 289, Dante says to Virgil, don't stop talking because he's learning. Because the sun's going down, their strength is fading. And Dante wants to keep learning. At the top of 290, this is in some ways one of the most important passages, it's this discourse on love in the whole of the Divine Comedy. The love of good which failed to satisfy the call of duty here is fortified. The ore once sluggish now is plied with zeal. All of us began by loving the good, but being in the world we get tainted. Remember Plato's cave age. The world around us influences it. Take, we don't even know it when we're younger. It begins to shape the way we see and feel. But if you want to better understand, give me your full attention. You will reap excellent fruit from this delay of our... God made nothing that wasn't good. Everything he did was good. The love of the good which failed to satisfy the call of duty here is fortified. So even if it got weakened sometime in our life, purgatory, penance, helps us to recover it. Right? Now here's his discord. Neither creator nor his creatures ever, my son, lacked love. God made us good. We were meant to love. That's our nature. This is page 290, Canto 17, line 95. Neither creator nor his creatures ever, my son, lacked love. There are, as you well know, two kinds of two kinds, the natural love and the rational. This is absolutely crucial for our understanding of our Catholic faith. Absolutely. Because it sets it apart from the Protestant world. Neither creature nor his, neither creator nor his creature ever my son like love. There are, as you well know, two kinds, the natural and the rational. Natural love may never be at fault 
the other may by choosing the wrong goal by insufficient or excessive zeal. This is absolutely fundamentally different from Plato because Plato believed there was a depravity man. Aristotle did not. This is consistent with Aristotle. This is St. Thomas going back to him. The Protestant church believes our love is corrupt in essence. Dante, so natural love is bad. It's only with grace that we come out of it. Is everybody clear here? This is absolutely fun. This is fundamental to our faith. There's two loves. The natural love can never be wrong. While it's fixed on the eternal good and observes temperance, loving worldly goods, it cannot be the cause of sinful joys. But when it turns towards evil or pursues some good with not enough or too much zeal, the creature turns on his creator then. So you can understand how love must be the seed of every virtue growing in you and every deed that merits punishment. What's behind every good deed we do is love. What's behind every bad deed we do is love. Loving the wrong thing the wrong way. God made nothing that wasn't good. He made us to be good, to love. That's our nature, that's our end. Now, since it's a fact that love cannot ignore the welfare of its loving self, there's nothing in the world can hate itself. We were made to love. That is, we can't... Calvin says some people are created evil. Before they even come into the world, they're damned. God, I, that so bothers me. There's nothing in the world can hate itself, and since no being can be conceived as being all in itself severed from the first being, no creature has the power to hate his God. So it follows, if I argue well, that evil that men love must be his neighbors. This love springs up in three ways. All source of evil comes from um, an evil um, in the love man holds for his neighbor, and it can come in three forms. There is the man who sees his own success connected to his neighbor's downfall. Thus he longs to see him fall from eminence. That's pride. First level. 291. Next, he who fears to lose honor and fame, power and favor, if his neighbors rise, vexed by this good, he wishes for the worst. He wants to see his neighbor lose it. That's envy. Finally, he who is wrong flares up in rage. With his great passions for revenge, he thinks only of how to harm his fellow man. This threefold love is purged by those below. Those are the three first ledges of purgatory, pride, envy, love. Because we love an evil, we want, we want bad to come to others. In our pride, we want to put them down. In our envy, we want to see them lose things we don't have that, that we want. And when they hurt us, um, we want um, we want to see them hurt back. So that threefold love is purged below. All of you vaguely apprehend and crave a good with which your heart may be at rest. And so each of you strives to reach that goal. If you aspire to it or grasp at it with only lukewarm love, then on this ledge, it's where they're going right now, you will be punished once you've confessed. That's sloth. Sloth is not loving things enough. There's a goodness to things. We should love them natural love. Another good there is, it brings not joy, not perfect joy, for it's not true essence, the fruit and root of every good. That's only God. 
The love that yields excessive to this is purged above on those three terraces. Avarice, gluttony, lust. Loving things too much, giving them too much value. Loving food and drink too much, giving them too great a value. Lust, loving sex too much. And the last one, lust, is closest to Eden. It's from there that Dante and Virgil will rise to um, paradise to Eden. So this is, so um, Marco Polis gave in his discourse on free will and the dangers that threaten it and why. And here in Canto 17, Virgil gives his discourse on love. And what he's saying is God made everything good. Um, he made the soul to love. What happens in the world is so often the way that world, the, you know, what happens to that soul it leads it astray, and purgatory is answering it. Is everybody clear on, on what, let me, I, I want to make this statement too because this is so important. One of, ma one of Plato's major works called the Phaedrus, it's a work in which Plato, Dante would have known this work really well. It's a work in which Plato says there are two forms of love. And I want everybody to hear this very seriously. There are two forms of love. Natural love and intellectual or acquired love. He says natural love is not good. Only intellectual love, acquired love, is. Plato's saying it's only when you can know something that you can straighten out your world. That's, that's a Gnostic position because we know that even though we know things... <laughs> Our wills don't always follow what we know. Paul said that we know. I mean, we're not supposed to steal, and we still. I mean, we. It's a, it's a, it's an implicit denial of free will. But the important point here I want to make is for Plato, natural love was flawed, deeply flawed. The body for him was a prison house. The Protestant Revolution goes back to Plato. The Catholic tradition goes back to Aristotle and Thomas, and both of them say. By the way, this is true of um, Dostoevsky's. It's a, a wonderful example in Dostoevsky's um, Crime and Punishment. When Raskolnikov kills this peasant, he, 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 um, he takes an axe and um, uses the dull end to kill her. The, the woman's cousin or relative comes in and instinctively he turns the axe around and uses the sharp edge. And it, it's a violent axe, so it doesn't sound... But instinctively what he's doing is merciful. He's trying to kill her immediately. It's a perfect example of what Dante's saying. Natural love, there's, Shakespeare shows this. Great poets do it. Natural love cannot be wrong. It's what we do with our heads sometimes with the choices that we make that we screw it up because we can make bad choices. And we, from everything that everybody's saying, we can justify them. I thought what Mike said a while ago was right on. It was a perfect description of the way our minds can mislead us. So the work of purgatory is helping people to see and understand, to recover a proper use of their minds, and to learn to order their wills, their loves. And at the center of these two discourses, one on free will and one on love. Anybody have any questions on either of these discourses, or particularly the one that Virgil's, where he says the cause of evil is love. One of the reasons I love this is, I mean, if you talk with communities today, um, they will romanticize love and say, love can never be wrong. 
Would Dante agree? Would the church agree? No, because we have disordered loves, all of us, particularly in our world. I mean, one of the, one of the struggles we all face is learning to order our loves. Dante's, in one sense, in all that he's doing with purgatory, is helping us to see the sorts of things that we can do to order our loves to make them good, because not all loves are good. We can love the wrong way. Dante gave us three examples, pride, envy, and wrath. Those are not the love of a good. Those are love of wrongs. We want to do people because of our selfishness or our pride. Let me stop. Any, any questions on any of this? Is it all clear? Is this clear? Robert? Oh, I'm glad to see that thumbs up. Connie, I know you've got a question. I know you do. No, I don't. Is this clear? Is all this clear? It really coincides with our faith. Trouble is, we don't. We so often don't get it. You know, I mean, it's just um, it's so much. It's so much a part of our faith, but it just anyway. It's um, for me, it's pretty profound. But Michael, did you have something? Could your audios? Can you put your audio on? Thank you for the homework, Bob. What I mean is, now i got to go back and read Crime and Punishment again because I didn't catch that detail about the axe. It's there. It's there. You can find it in Brothers Care. I mean, it won't be an axe scene in Brothers Care Month, but that was deeply a part of what Dostoevsky saw. If you know anything about Dostoevsky, you know that religion and Christ and holiness is... I mean, Brothers Karamazov, I think, is one of the great novels of, the, of our time, but... Um, but I mean that was just instinctive with him. I, I think there's another problem with Dostoevsky, but I don't I don't want to go into it. But I think that's a really beautiful example of what Dante's talking about. Natural love. God made us good, and and the reason I'm sorry I'm pressing this. I hope I'm not. We live in an age which darkens everything, just darkens everything, and we can terribly sentimentalize love. Um, we we live in an age which looks at the human being as if he's a product of dark forces. Darwin, Freud, you know, we grow up with that. We, we, we seek refuge in love, and we think love by itself is automatically good, when it's not. The church is so much richer and more complex in its thinking. Um, it, I think it's so instinctive for us to be dark today. Um, love is not an easy thing. We, we know that from Christ. Um, Dante's making clear, I don't know what to call it, the reasonableness, the sanity, the sane, the goodness of it. Um, God made, God made everything good. We were meant to love. Do we love the right way always? We've learned in hell that's not so, and we're learning here in purgatory that, that that's not so. What's going on in purgatory is people are recognizing that and doing something about it. With God's help, they're becoming better. So, any any last comments or questions or? I just have to say, Michael, you're my hero. If you can slip in crime and punishment in between purgatory and paradiso, so 
God bless you. <laughs> now you know what you've got to do next week, Mike. <laughs> it's it's not it's not happening, Melody. <laughs> <laughs> Um, next week, we're going to look at the Siren episode, and we'll, and we'll finish the Purgatorial. We'll go to the top three levels. I'll, I'll do them somewhat quickly. I mean, we should be able to get these. These, to me, were some of the most important things. The lower levels are... The upper levels are rich, but I, I think you guys have enough, you know, that you've got to help you go through the rest. We won't, we won't um, skirt them at all. We'll, we'll do them a justice. But next week, I'd like to start... Um, the purgatorial, so, Paradiso. huh? Paradiso. Yeah, we're gonna um, anyway finish the purgatorial, and then the following week, we will start the Paradiso. The Paradiso is not easy to read. It's very theological. It's very intellectual. Um, it, but it's it's extraordinary. It's just, it's the height of our faith. Dante's. Dante is going to do something that nobody except Shakespeare, but Dante in the Paradiso does something. I mean, he he shows a glory to the human person that I don't think any other artist, maybe Bach, you know, and some of the best of Bach. Dante shows um, this great glory to the human being that the modern world has so lost. If any of you know Flannery O'Connor, she's a she's a Catholic writer. She most of her most of what she's done is that she's known for her short stories. And she writes this story, I think it's called The Heart of the Park, um, about this guy following somebody and mysteriously being taken into, um, taken up with him and finding he ends up in a museum. And at the center of this museum is this glass cage. And it's as if the guy is compelled to go there. And this other guy follows him. And what they see when they look in the cage is this shrunken, shrunken pygmy of an image. It's, it's meant to be an image of modern man, what the modern world has done. It goes so directly to what, you know, Marco was saying about these influences that determine you and, you know, the, the modern sense of being a victim, that we're just this... We're not a creature of God. We're not made in God's image. We're this thing, and it hurts us. So, um, amazing work ahead of us. Anyway, enjoy the week. Um, it's good to see you all. You guys stay safe. Um, I hope you're all getting vaccinations or doing what you need to do to stay clear of this thing. Um, keep us, each other, in our prayers if you all could. Okay? You guys have a good week. See you, see you next week. Thank you. Powerful class. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you.